Welcome to our 82nd Rising Tide Ocean podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. And how is everyone today? I think we're doing good. Today, our guest is, and friend is Chad Nelson, CEO of a group made up of tens of thousands of surfers and ocean lovers known as the Surf Rider Foundation. For 16 years, Chad was its environmental director before becoming its leader, so he has a keen insider perspective on uh, its long and storied history. But Chad, before we get into all that Surfrider does, why don't you tell us about your own origins, your own ocean stoke growing up by the coast with your dad, Laguna Beach, and so forth? Yeah, thanks for having me, David and, and Vicky. Um, I had the great fortune of basically growing up at the ocean. I was born on Long Island near Jones Beach. Uh, when I was two and a half years old, my parents uh, took me to Saipan, a small island in the South Pacific where my dad was a high school scientist science teacher for two years. Uh, and then I spent the rest of my youth growing up in Laguna Beach. So uh, I've kind of been lucky enough. I, I, I don't even remember my introduction to the ocean um, because it was kind of always there. Nice. And, and you became a lifeguard in high school or after high school? Yeah, I was a, a ocean lifeguard in high school and, and through college. I was a pretty avid free diver and scuba diver. Laguna Beach has a lot of scuba diving. So I rescued a lot of scuba divers. Uh, fisherman, surfer, pretty much if it could be done in the ocean, I was I was interested in it. I find that so exciting because we often say, like, what was your first moment? And I love it. You're like, don't even waste time with me. I'm so integrated with my life. That, <laughs> yeah, there was never a first time. It was always part of me. That's that's really yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I credit my parents for that. You know, I they, they kind of chose this coastal lifestyle and I was just lucky enough to be brought up in it and with it. Then you went to one of my alma maters, BU, and studied geology, I guess. And uh, and then you got into oceans at Duke University, one of the real marine centers for that sort of policy and science convergence. Yeah, that's right. You know, interestingly enough, my dad was an ocean science educator. Uh, he taught marine biology in high school, um, and I grew up at the beach. But I still didn't realize that you could that there were such a variety of careers you could have associated with the ocean. So it wasn't until I went to Duke's Coastal Environmental Management Program that I realized that you could have jobs at NOAA and Coastal Zone Management and Fisheries Management. And, you know, it really opened my eyes to uh, a number of opportunities that are out there, including nonprofit conservation, which is where I ended up. And the first realization I had of sort of eco surfers was the 1990 Huntington Beach spill in California. And there were a bunch of pissed off surfers with signs reading, no way, dude, we don't want your crude. So how do you find your way to Surfrider Foundation? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Surfrider was founded in 1984. So it was around and I, you know, in my sort of teenage years and, and I was, you know, it was centered around Southern California. And so I was kind of vaguely aware uh, of Surfrider Foundation. And, you know, I watched over my lifetime the conditions in Southern California change, right? When I was a kid, I'd go out spearfishing with my buddies and we couldn't catch any fish. We thought we were just bad at it. So, you know, we'd go ask the old lifeguard guys, like, what are we doing wrong? And they would tell us, well, it's just fished out. The fish are gone. You know, and we, well, I didn't know any better. I just took this as the gospel. I, I guess we missed it. We were too late. Uh, the ocean no longer has fish in it. So it's sort of experiences like that, uh, watching the overdevelopment of the California coastline impact water quality that got me interested in 
you know, environmental protection. And uh, I was broke. I was uh, in grad school and I needed to come home and uh, I was looking for a summer internship and uh, they had an opportunity at Surfrider. So I was a grad student intern at Surfrider in 1995. Wow. When I was working for NOAA in 1991, um, I was working on all the response to comments for the designation of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And it was really funny because all of these comments would come in from this organization called Surfrider Foundation. And none of us in the office in DC had any idea who they were. So it was at the very beginning, I think, where you guys really rallied and got behind this very large marine protected area. And then of course, I got more and more familiar with the organization and oh my gosh, has it ever grown since my first experience with um, Surfrider in 1991. And it's really impressive with uh, all the chapters you have and the extensive level of policy that you were working on. So tell us a little bit about the growth once you started working there. Yeah, you know, I, the credit to the founders that, you know, I think historically surfers were perceived and sometimes still are, I guess, but it's sort of being these burnout, dropout people who aren't really contributing to society, you know, and I, I think these surfers got tired of surfing in pollution at Malibu, uh, tired of oil spills, the threats of more drilling, you know, and those founders kind of activated the surfing community to get involved in, you know, coastal protection. And, you know, the if you think about it, the sort of qualities that really make up a surfer, which are, you know, they're tough, they're resilient, they're tuned into nature, they don't give up. It's a sport that requires like incredible persistence. And all those qualities actually make for great activists. So, you know, I think, you know, they, they obviously spark something that uh, has continued to grow. And, you know, the way I look at it is the surf rider kind of went through these phases where in the beginning, it was surfers trying to protect surf spots. It was pretty focused myopically, um, you know, and as we grew, we realized, well, you can't protect a surf spot without protecting sort of the watershed and the community that surrounds it. So it expanded to the community, you know, and then it kind of expanded to thinking about the, these larger global ocean issues, right? Plastic pollution and climate change that are affecting the whole globe. So we've kind of gone from protecting surf spots to, in some sense, is trying to be a, a player in protecting the planet, which is, as you know, an ocean planet. And uh, over that time, like when I started, I think we had 20 chapters. We fast forward today, we have 200 chapters and clubs and about five staff uh, operating. And, you know, now we have uh, over 70 and our ability to work. What we used to just work really locally grassroots. And we still do that working in communities, but we've now been able to sort of scale up and we can get things done at the state level. Just last week, we helped pass two bills in Oregon, one to ban styrofoam and another to change the health code so we can use reusables at the at restaurants. Uh, and then we can go up to the national level. And, you know, some of this got started with David and, and Blue Frontier going to D.C. You know, and now we organize an annual Hill Day at Surfrider to advocate at the federal level. And just in the last few weeks, our, our plastics team is working with Surfrider Europe on the U.N. Plastics Treaty. So we've now kind of scaled into thinking about issues at the global scale. Surf Rider has such a range of activities today. Let, let's talk about three of its major victories that you like to talk about. Uh, Trace Palmas in Puerto Rico, Trestles in California, and what you call uh, surfonomics. Yeah, and, and uh, two of those are actually linked. 
So the Trace Palmas Marine Reserve is a small marine reserve on the west side of Puerto Rico at a town on Rincon, Puerto Rico. That was a project that actually started in the early 2000s. There was a number of condominium development projects that were going to threaten the coast, coastal access, and cause sedimentation that was going to impact the coral reefs off Rincon. Um, it's got some incredible elkhorn coral reefs, which are a threatened species. And a lot of people don't know this, but there's a big wave there. You know, there's 20, 30, 40 foot, you know, Jaws kind of maverick scale waves that break there. People think of the Caribbean as being, you know, a passive place or small waves, but it's really impressive. And it's breaking over these, these coral reefs. And there's the Puerto Rico trench offshore. So like blacks or mavericks, it actually, you know, it's this deep trench that's causing that wave focusing in these big waves. And so from a surfing perspective, you know, it's this kind of gem of the Caribbean threatened by these projects. And we were able to fight off the hotel projects, but, you know, we realized that's a reactive strategy and we wanted to get proactive. So we worked with the fishing community. Uh, we worked with the local surfers to establish with a small but well-managed marine reserve. I think it was one of the first mariners, marine reserves designed, you know, specifically to protect not only habitat, but also surfing and recreation. And during the process in those early days, there was a lot of tension in the community between the developers who wanted to develop tourism development and frankly, overdevelop the town, you know, in the conservation community. And um, thanks to our friends at Environmental Defense Fund, we, we partnered with an economist named Linwood Pendleton, who came in and did this assessment of sort of what's driving tourism in this little town in Puerto Rico. And of course, it was snorkeling coral reefs, diving, surfing, and some fishing. Uh, and so he sort of demonstrated that by protecting the ocean environment, that was actually good for business. So it wasn't an environment versus the economy. It was the environment is the economy. That little study that he did was a game changer in the conversation in this town. You know, and you fast forward today, there's not a single hotel, Airbnb, restaurant that isn't bragging about the beautiful marine reserve offshore. So it's now become a clear tourist attraction to the town. So that experience for me, really, the light bulb went on. I was like, oh, we can use economics, this natural resource economics as a powerful tool to talk to people who maybe aren't focused on these kind of moralistic environmental values, but want to talk business and dollars. And so I then worked with Linwood to get my um, doctorate at UCLA and started looking at the economics of surfing, surfonomics. So surfonomics <laughs> is really sustainable blue economy that, that we talk about uh, in California, for example. 19 coastal counties with 25 million people generate 85% of our $3.3 trillion economy. And, and much of that, people have learned over time, depends on healthy coasts and oceans. One of the famous... Uh, Places in, in that California coast, of course, is Trestle's famous uh, surf spot. And uh, that was another battle of Surf Rider 1. That's right. And also involved the surf surfonomics because that's actually where I did my research. I studied the surfers at, at Trestle's. And you're right. I mean, surfonomics is just a, a small sort of previously invisible sector of this ocean and coastal re tourism recreation. And, and if we keep our coasts and oceans healthy... 
that sector will continue to generate revenue forever. Uh, yeah, so Trestles is, you know, one of the world's great surf spots. It's where the WSL World Surf League holds their championship finals uh, for the last three years. They'll be doing it again this fall. It's a complex of waves that are sort of these cobble river mouth breaks like Rincon and Malibu, a lot of the classic best surf spots in California. And what's unusual, it's a, there's also a fifth most used state park, visited state park in California there, San Onofre State Park. And it's somewhat unusual in, in Southern California is that the watershed that drains down to Trussels is relatively undeveloped. You know, we live in a place that's highly, highly urbanized and it's adjacent to Camp Pendleton, a marine base. So this this pristine watershed has been pumping clean water, sand, and cobble down to the coast for you know millennia, and built this great magical beach and surf spot and habitat. And Orange County road builders wanted to put a six lane private toll road right down, right down the gut of this watershed, you know, <sighs> and can and connect to the five freeway, and it was going to you know destroy a campground, impact a bunch of really important habitat the water quality at the at the surf spot cut off all the sand and and cobble and you know this was a 500 million dollar project supported by our old schwarzenegger who was governor at the time a lot of people told us that we shouldn't even bother fighting it because it was unwinnable and we looked bad and credit to a guy on my staff matt mclean he kind of had this moment in the office and he said we're the Surfrider foundation uh, we're we're based in san Clemente. if we're not going to fight to save one of California's best waves. Like we should just fold up shop and go home. It doesn't matter if it's winnable or not. We got to go down fighting this thing. And, um, you know, that was the convincing argument. And, uh, you know, we fought it. We had, you know, the most attendance at a state parks commission meeting in the history of California. That was sort of the first hearing. Uh, we had a coastal commission. How many hearing people that they, was that? I think that was probably about 500. They probably averaged about 30. And, uh, you know, then they had a coastal commission meeting where we had to, they had to keep moving the venue because so many people were coming and they ultimately held it at the Del Mar fairgrounds. And there's probably over 3,500 people at that meeting. And, you know, <laughs> totally, I call it the uh, Woodstock of surfing conservation. Uh, there were bands, there were people in costumes. It was celebratory, you know, and we won that Coastal Commission hearing. And then the toll road folks appealed it to Commerce, which is, you know, overseas NOAA, the coastal programs, they brought it up to the federal level. They held a hearing in San Diego too. And again, you know, three, 4,000 people showed up and ultimately stopped that project. To me, it was a real testament to people power. The politics, the money were all aligned towards building a, you know, this is a road in Orange County, California. It should be a no brainer in, in terms of, you know, the past. So it was a really, uh, you know, it was those thousands of people and an incredible coalition of environmental groups that, you know, came together to uh, save a really special place. When the people lead, the leaders will follow. Vicki, you had a question. That's right. Oh, I just said, congratulations. No, it always inspires me when you have something you're fighting for that you love and you collaborate and people come out and the environment wins. It's just like, it's, it's awesome. Well, I wanted to ask you, the last time I saw you, we were both at the UN Oceans Conference in Lisbon, in Portugal. And um, do you have some projects going on in that area or different locations that, that have stemmed from your activities at the UN Ocean Conference? 
I thought that UN Ocean Conference for me, uh, before I answer that part of the question, was really profound in that I feel like historically, a lot of the conferences I've gone to that are sort of focused on ocean conservation, I've really focused on the problems. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was a very solution-oriented conference. There's a lot of talk about sort of blue carbon and uh, nature-based solutions, you know, and sort of marine protected areas and, and you know, Instead of focusing on uh, on sort of like the impacts, where there's a lot of talk about the UN Plastics Treaty, so I, I came out of it actually quite optimistic uh, that you know we kind of ha- we kind of know what we need to do to solve a lot of these ocean challenges. We just need to build the the public will uh, to actually do them. Like David said, if you build enough public will, we'll ultimately be able to get the political will because we make them do it. One of the things that came out of that that's exciting is Surfrider Europe, which is based in Biarritz, France, is forming Surfrider Portugal. They had some chapters and it's now becoming, it just became sort of an international, uh, you know, standalone organization. And um, we're going to host something called the Global Wave Conference the first week of October. This is a gathering of sort of the surfing environmental groups from around the world. It's kind of co-organized by Surfrider, Surfrider Europe, Surfers Against Sewage, which is a British surf conservation group, Wild Coast, which is sort of a Mexican-American conservation group, and, and Save the Waves, which is really a global organization creating world surfing reserves around the globe. We realized uh, over the years that there's a bunch of these surf conservation groups, and we're not really talking to each other as much as we could and working together. So uh, we'll be gathering in Peniche and Nazare, which is home of the 100-foot wave uh, oh, stories, yes. <laughs> uh, in the first week of October. So that, that came out of, the, out of the UN conference. Oh, very, very cool. So people are aware that uh, coral reefs are a threat, and we're trying to make people more aware that uh, kelp forests and other unique habitat are a threat. I don't think people think about surf spots uh, standing waves as a threatened uh, habitat, but it certainly is. Uh, the threats, as you say, are development and and what else? Yeah, no, you know, there's a there's a guy, uh, Dan Reinemann, who's a professor at Cal State Channel Island, who actually published some research in, uh, in Calif about sort of threats to surf spots in California. Uh, but you know, part of it is sea level rise, right? We're going to get three to six feet of sea level rise. So I call that permanent high tide. You know, so a lot of surf spots are tide sensitive and won't break if the tide's too high. So those surf spots are going to be drowned. And uh, in theory, as the sea moves inland, uh, other places that may be too shallow to surf today would turn into surf spots of the future. That that's only if we let the ocean migrate shoreward unimpeded, we're more likely to put in seawalls and, and other structures uh, so we, you know, so there's an opportunity for surf spots to be lost from sea level rise. You know, David, as you know, the statistics around the likelihood of coral reef survival with two degrees of temperature rise is really dire. You know, we're going to lose ninety to one hundred percent of our coral reefs. So all those famous reef breaks in Fiji and South Pacific, you know, in Bali and Indonesia, could be lost if we don't control climate change. Surfrider produces the State of the Beach report. And I wanted to get the the assessment on the, the latest report that came out. How are our coastal states doing regarding um, the State of the Beaches? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the State of the Beach report, what we're doing is a, we're evaluating 
the state's ability to adapt and respond to the impact of climate change to our coasts. So we look at uh, things like their coastal adaptation policy. Do they have, you know, this idea of managed retreat built into their planning? Are they permissive of seawalls? Because we know if we put in seawalls, you know, it may protect the land and coastal property, but uh, it's going to ruin our beaches and our and our surf spots. You know, do they have a sediment management plan? So we're looking to see if they have these sort of tools in the toolbox to, to adapt and manage the climate change. And we rate the states based on those. And so, you know, California, for example, sort of gets an A, A minus. We have a lot of good policies in place. On the other end of the spectrum, and I kind of ironically is the Southeast, which is the lowest lying states that have the most threat, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, uh, are the least prepared states, you know, and so so we're kind of, you know, we're looking at those and we're also looking to see which states are making improvements and we're trying to encourage them by giving out these grades, not only to make this an issue in their state, but also learn from the states that are, are doing well. One thing we're learning about the report is it's one thing to have the policies and rules in place. It's another thing to use them. <laughs> so, you know, California's got great policies and, uh, you know, is doing a relatively good job, but certainly uh, doesn't always kind of live up to exactly what they could be. Now, California could be a leader in, in coastal restoration and adaptation if the governor wasn't cutting funding for just those projects. And so we have a lot of issues in, in terms of what real leadership looks like. Certainly, the, the image of the surfer still tends to be a golden-haired white boy in California. And the reality, of course, is that a lot of women and people of color have felt excluded from the sport for a long time. Um, surf riders, one of many groups we had Dion Ibarra of the Wahini Project on the podcast earlier. How is Surfrider working on the sort of diversity of surfing as a sport? David, that's a, a really great question. And and you're right. I mean, it is interesting that, you know, the sort of two cultures that are, are kind of created, credited with sort of the origin of surfing are, you know, the Polynesians and the Hawaiians, you know, and then there's a, a debate about whether the Peruvians with their sort of straw rafts were also surfing and who came first. And it doesn't really matter, but, you know, two kind of coastal indigenous communities, for whatever reason, the power of Hollywood or uh, Southern California, you know, it's kind of the, the it's been rebranded as this kind of white male sport for, for decades, which frankly is a shame because it has been exclusive. And I think even worse than that, you know, is there's a long history of segregation in coastal communities. So, the, you know, we had white only beaches there were riots on the beaches in South Carolina over, you know, black people going to the white pe person's beach. And so, uh, like so much of America, there's also a history of segregation on our on our coastlines. Swimming pools were eliminated rather than integrated. Uh, so we lost a lot of public swimming. So there's, you know, a lot of underserved communities also have a low percentage of people who can swim. So a lot of structural and historic reasons why surfing, beach going and ocean going, uh, you know, ocean recreation, you know, was less common for people of color. So we have a lot of a lot of sort of work to do to undo all of that damage. And, you know, we've made a justice, equity, diversity and inclusion commitment at Surfrider to really try to support that. We believe the oceans and beaches are a public commons, which they are. It means they should be welcome to all. Historically, 
you know, we do a lot of work on beach access. Um, so there's a lot of efforts to privatize the coast to make beaches exclusive for, you know, rich private enclaves. And um, we fought that to keep beaches open. And I think in the past we thought, oh, you know, we did the work of keeping the physical path open to the beach. We did our job for beach access. And what we've really learned is that's only maybe 50% of the equation. You know, there's there's cultural norms, there's acceptance, there's all of these historical you know, exclusionary policies that we need to undo. And, you know, so we're trying to do that work. I think as important, more importantly, there's been this emergence of all of these great sort of groups bringing underserved kids of color and people of color to the beach. You have Laura Bea in New York City. Uh, you have Color of the Water in Los Angeles. Uh, Brown Girl Surf, Black Girl Surf, the city... Uh, project uh, up in the Bay Area. So you have these, these sort of emerging groups that are, are really kind of, uh, I think, bringing and then you have uh, sort of these, these icons, Hunter Jones is a professional surfer, Salema Masakela is kind of an X Games commentator, you know, black guy championing this sort of diversity in surfing. And I'm a big fan of it all. A, it's the right thing to do. And B, frankly, it's just enriching the experience Surfing's now in the Olympics. So Carissa Moore, who's, you know, a native Hawaiian surfer, won the gold medal. You know, so I think that's going to inspire women around the globe, these young girls, to get involved in surfing. So it's, I think it's exciting times for surfing. No, I think it's great that women have the equal opportunity to risk their lives in the monstrous, cold, <laughs> sharky waters of Mavericks along with the guys. Lucky yes, lucky us. <laughs> I know. It, it really takes a brave person to go out there and surf those waves. It's too much for me. You started on the beach with your dad, your brother surfing. Um, you've got your own family now, your own kids. Uh, how much time do you spend in the water with them? And, and what's your hope for the kind of ocean they'll inherit? Yeah, I have 21-year-old twin boys that can surf circles around me now. Uh, they're both in college, so I, you know, I don't see them quite as much as I, I, I'd like. But we still usually get together for a, a surf trip or two uh, during the year. To kind of finish on an optimistic note that I told you about, you know, the oceans and Laguna Beach being fished out when I was a kid. You know, we're on the 10th anniversary of a marine reserve in Laguna Beach. It is unrecognizable from when I was a kid. I take people out there snorkeling. There's schools of sheephead 50 deep. I used to see one a month if I was looking for them. It is thriving and vibrant. So the marine reserve off Laguna Beach is sort of a, a living testament to what's possible. You know, my kids are witnessing a ocean much richer uh, there than the one that I, I did. Well, I want to thank you so much, Chad, for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Thank you so much for your leadership, your optimism, and um, see you at the, the ocean. Yeah, thanks to both of you for having me. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.